keeping. We're going to be in James chapter 3. It may seem odd that I'm reading from James when we're in a study of Proverbs, but uh, the topic this morning is the, the power of words. And this passage, these 12 verses in James, summarize beautifully what Proverbs has to say on this topic. And we'll be looking at many verses in Proverbs as we proceed. Twelve years ago this month, in the very same week as the Tuesday 9-11 terrorist attack, Debbie and I and our children were at South South Padre Island, Texas on vacation. Four days after 9-11, on that Saturday morning, we were gathering up our things to, to go back home. And as we were packing, I got a phone call on my cell phone from my mom, and she said, so have you guys heard about the causeway? And I said, what about the causeway? And I went out onto the balcony of the hotel we were staying at, and this is what I saw. Bless the pelican. A 150-foot section of the causeway was gone. At almost exactly 2 o'clock that morning, four barges linked together and fully loaded with the cargo of steel crashed into a section of the support pylons for the causeway and that chunk of the causeway instantly collapsed. That was just at the time when all of the bars on the island were emptying out. They closed at 2 a.m., So there was more traffic right at that point than there was the entire rest of the night. The section of the bridge that collapsed was just over the peak on the mainland side. So if you were coming from the island, it was the very worst possible place for the bridge to come apart for you to be able to see it. You couldn't see it. And because... That section, when that section of the bridge collapsed, it took out the electricity that supplied the very bright lighting on the causeway. It was pitch black. It was an overcast night. And so the cars that were coming across from the island had no way to know what was going to happen. Six cars went off the bridge that night from a height of more than 80 feet Eight people died. Only three of the people who drove off the bridge survived. Those three were pulled out by four fishermen in one boat who pulled them from three separate cars. Debbie and I met one of the survivors on a ferry on the way back. The Texas Department of Transportation commandeered a bunch of the fishing boats You couldn't get cars across because that was the only path, but they were ferrying people back from the island to the mainland. Sunday afternoon, we were on a ferry and we met a young lady named Bridget. She had been driving in her pickup truck after she left one of the, the clubs on the island, and she saw the car in front of her disappear. And she slammed on her brakes and it was too late And she had the amazing presence of mind as she was going, as her truck was sliding toward that precipice to hit the window down button on her door. And when her truck hit 
the water, her airbag deployed, and thanks to the cracked door, the, the, the slightly lowered window and the airbag, she survived and was able to be fished out, pulled out of her car by those fishermen. Amazingly, um, aside from a couple of bruises, she was completely uninjured. Now, her story in particular doesn't add a lot to the point, but it just ama- it was amazing to us, so I wanted to share it with you. But here's the deal. Ever since that day, <laughs> when I read James 3, I think very differently about ships and rudders and tongues. The cluster of barges that destroyed that bridge was traveling at two-tenths of one mile per hour. The only thing that determined the direction those barges were moving and the angle at which they were moving was the rudder of a tugboat that was pushing them, one single tugboat. Now, that's a picture of another one. These barges aren't loaded. The ones that night were fully loaded. That rudder determined whether those barges were going to make it under that bridge or crash into it. By the time the tugboat captain realized the catastrophic event that was about to unfold, he was powerless to do anything about it because the the size and mass, the weight of those barges was such that in that the in, in order to adjust the course, he would have had to have done so an hour earlier. And he would have had to have been tweaking it all along to get it to, to get the barges to go through there correctly. I'm going to blank that out for a minute. James points out that even the most massive of ships is directed by a very small rudder, and he likens that rudder to a man's tongue. In other words, to a man's words. Just as a tiny rudder steers a massive ship, a man's words have great power. Power to do very great good or very great harm. Once a ship is set on a particular course by a very tiny rudder, it's not easy to change that course. It's not easy to take it back. When you allow yourself to speak hurtful, selfish, destructive words, you cannot undo the damage that those words cause. Just because later you say, well, I didn't really mean to say that. Or I didn't mean to say it quite so harshly. What you say later cannot prevent or undo the destruction that you've caused. Applying that same principle to the, another of the metaphors James uses in chapter 3, Once a tiny flame has set an entire forest ablaze, you can't take it back. Whether we like it or not, the words that we speak are never harmless. They are powerful beyond all our expectations. I'll say that again. Our words are powerful beyond all our expectations, and I'm going to demonstrate that from Scripture They're powerful either for good or evil. So we have to measure our words before they escape our mouths. That's our calling from God when it comes to the words we choose to speak. First, (laughs) we actually are supposed to choose the words and not let them just kind of flow out. And we are to make sure that the words we do speak are those that God would have us speak. I want to talk for a minute about the power of 
how the power of God's words explains the power of our words. God called everything that we see around us into being with the spoken word. In Genesis chapter 1, in fact, in the third verse of the Bible, it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And in each successive day, in the narration of each successive day of God's work of creation, the means, the agency by which God calls everything into being is that He speaks and it exists. That's power. This morning, I love, I love it when the worship ties to the message. This morning when Ron, my brother Ron got up and talked about that evening before Jesus was crucified, when he was betrayed into the hands of those who would crucify him, Judas escorted the temple guard and a whole battalion of Roman soldiers along with a group of Pharisees to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. And when and Jesus saw them come in, he approached them and he asked them, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus replied, I am And with those two simple words, every one of those soldiers and Pharisees and temple guards fell to the ground. That's power. As Ron pointed out, as, uh, as, um, it was another brother that pointed out, it was you, Robert. If Jesus had wanted to, he could have spoken a word to the Father and God would have sent 12 legions. You know how many a legion is? It's 6,000. 72,000 angels could have been brought to bear with a word from our Savior. He didn't do that part because that didn't fit the agenda of God the Father. But that's, that's the power that he has. God creates by his spoken word. He subjects his creation to his will by the spoken word. And he makes himself known to us by the spoken and written word. God is there and he is not silent. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to us in words. And that revelation is the most powerful agent of change to the hearts of men that exists anywhere because it bears the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who wrote it. According to Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to discern to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's power. It's no coincidence that in John chapter 1, Jesus is called the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. John says it is He alone who has fully exegeted, explained, laid bare to us who God is. God speaks a word and creates. He speaks and His word subjects His creation to His will. He speaks and He makes Himself known to His creation. And in all that He does, it transcends anything that we would ever begin to associate with the power of words. And with nothing more than a word, God judges that which He has created, either to correct or to destroy. According to Revelation 19, when Jesus returns to this earth, the next time it will not be to seek and save that which was lost. 
it will be to judge those who stand against Almighty God and those who belong to Him. He will come with a robe dipped in blood. Revelation 19.13 says, And His name, when He returns, is called the Word of God. Two verses later, it says, And from His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may smite the nations. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the fierce winepress, the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Revelation 1.16 talks about that same sword that comes out of the mouth of the one who is called the first and the last and the living one. And it calls it a sharp, two-edged sword. Does that sound familiar? The sword with which Jesus will judge all the nations of the earth is not a physical sword. It is His spoken word that comes out from His mouth. With a word, He will fill the valley of Megiddo with the blood of the enemies of God up to the bridles of their horses. According to Revelation 14.20, that is power. Every word that God speaks has the power to create or to destroy, to kill or to impart life, to bless or to curse, to humble or to exalt, to redeem or to condemn. It is impossible to speak of the fear of God or of faith in God without talking about humble and fearful reverence for every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay, so why... Have I spent all that time talking about the power of God's words when Proverbs talks mostly about men's words? It's actually very simple. If God has invested his words with such tremendous power, what do you suppose is true of the words spoken by those who are created in his image? What do you suppose... This image bearer, this body, this temple of the Spirit, which part of it do you suppose God has endowed with the greatest power? If God accomplishes such mighty things with his words, what, what would you expect the words of men who are created in his image, those whom he has appointed to exercise dominion over his creation to be like? Would they have a small part or a huge part in the exercise of that dominion? The title of this message is The Surprising Power of Words, but if we're paying attention, (laughs) it should not surprise us at all that our words are powerful. They can do tremendous good or tremendous harm because they follow the pattern of the words of God. The question is, do they follow the purpose and the goodness of the words of God? In the passage we just read from James 3, it isn't what we do with our beefy biceps, and these aren't very beefy, or our hands that causes the grievous destruction James talks about. It's our tongues. And it is with that same member of our bodies that God empowers us to do great evil or great good. He empowers great good, but those words have the power to do evil. Let's talk about that first. As we've seen over the past couple of weeks, there's one particular category of sin and righteousness that shows up a whole lot in Proverbs, especially in the early chapters. Uh, As Solomon is teaching his son about the distinction between wisdom 
and foolishness. He talks more about sexual purity than about any other area of behavior. As he talks about threats to sexual purity and protections against sexual impurity, we find something in that instruction that we may not expect. And that is that the greatest threat he presents to sexual purity and the greatest protection against sexual impurity is words. In Proverbs 5, 1 through 4, he says, My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, to the words that I am speaking to you, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. And then he says, For the lips of that forbidden woman drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. In Proverbs 6, He says again, My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother, the words that you have heard from those who are instructing you. And and then he talks about how those words will lead and guide and protect and give light and life. And then in verse 24, he says, They will keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the forbidden woman. Words, good and evil. That's the contrast. And there's an important wordplay there on lips that shouldn't be missed. And that is in uh, chapter 5. He talks about the lips of the forbidden woman, but he's not talking about the physical lips. He's talking about the speech. Because if you look at the second half of that parallel statement, it says, smoother than oil is her speech. Solomon's warning his son to be vigilant against the wiles, the seductions of the forbidden woman. And it is by his lips that he will safeguard wisdom and purity. And if he doesn't, it's by someone else's lips that he will be led into that slaughterhouse chute that we talked about the last couple of weeks. In Proverbs 6, the way of life is to pay attention to wise words. And the way of death is not to pay attention to them. At our Wednesday breakfast discussion about this message, my brother Bob Deffenbaugh raised this point with me, and it really got my attention, that even in this matter of sexual purity, where we generally think of physical cues as the most determinative, right? How someone dresses and, and the way they handle themselves physically. We think that's where the biggest temptation comes. In Proverbs, it is the words of that woman that appeal to the ego, the self-interest of the man that she's targeting. And it is her words that paint the deceptive picture of marvelous-sounding benefit while at the same time denying the real consequences of the behavior that she's enticing that man into. Certainly, the way she dresses and acts are critical factors in the seduction. But the first and most prominent aspect of her seduction that Solomon focuses focuses on is words. I don't know about you, but that's that really gets my attention. For both men and women, what you say to members of the opposite sex tells them what you truly value about them and about yourself. Guys, if a girl desires your approval and affection, your words are going to tell her what she has to do to get it, and vice versa. 
What you do with your words isn't a game. It's life and death at the spiritual level for you and for the people that you're speaking to. Words have the power to entice and deceive, and they have the power to tear down and to destroy. Proverbs 11.9 says, With his mouth the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. Proverbs 11.11 says, By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, it's lifted up, but by the mouth of the wicked, it's torn down. Proverbs 15.4 says, A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. Foolish, wicked words are powerfully destructive. They tear down, they crush, they destroy. And the destruction that they cause goes far, far beyond what we would expect. And that's exactly what We were talking about at the beginning when we looked at James 3. If you had never seen fire before and you saw the flame of one candle, would you have any clue that that could result in turning an entire forest to ash? No, that's not what you'd expect. But that's the truth. It's not a hyperbole. It's not an exaggeration. All it has taken to burn down Hundreds of thousands of acres of forest is one cigarette flipped out of a car window. The damage is inordinate compared with the cause from our perspective, but not from God's perspective, because His words have always been amazingly powerful. We're the ones who have trouble getting that this is not an exaggeration. Our words can crush a man's spirit, they can destroy a neighbor, they can turn a city to rubble, and they can turn a forest to ash. Our words have the power to divide. Proverbs 16, 27, 28 says, A worthless man digs up evil. (laughs) What a picture. While his words are as a scorching fire, a perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. That exact same phrase comes up in Proverbs 17.9. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. The best of friends can be torn apart from each other by nothing more than words. The phrase digs up evil presents a picture of someone who loves to ferret out dirt on other people and then make it known to others. A person whose ego feeds on wrecking the reputations of others. Now that may seem like a pretty extreme case, but there's a principle there that applies to all of us, and it's a principle that demands our attention. My dear brother Kerry pointed out in our Wednesday discussion that that which usually makes people leave a church and might even make them leave the the church, the body of Christ altogether, is not that some other believer punched him in the face. That doesn't generally happen, right? It's that some other believer punched him in the heart with their words. In the overwhelming majority of cases, people leave the church because of careless, hurtful words. 
And surely some leave because wise and godly words were spoken to them that they were not ready to hear. But far too often what drives people away from the church, from their own church, is some other believer's foolish, thoughtless, hurtful words. And most of the time, the words that that drove them away weren't even spoken to them. They were spoken to somebody else about them. That's what the Bible calls malicious gossip. It's deadly. When it happens among believers, it tears the body of Christ apart like few other things can do. How often have you heard someone present very sensitive information about another brother or sister, something you really didn't need to know? And they tell you it's a prayer request. I'm going to read these two very pointed passages one more time, then I'm going to add a third one. And I want want all of us to think about the magnitude of what's being said here. A worthless man digs up evil while his words are as a scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. He who covers a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. And then Proverbs eleven thirteen, He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. He who is trustworthy conceals a matter. That statement all by itself is, is a gold mine. One of the most accurate tests of the quality of a person's character is whether he can keep a confidence or not. We have to be exceedingly careful with everything that we say to one person about another person. I have to conclude from what I see in God's Word that with very rare exception, if you're saying something negative or critical about someone and the person you're talking to isn't the one you're criticizing, you're probably sinning. Not always. There are cases where it's it's necessary. But it better be necessary. All of us have violated this at some point. I certainly have. But for Christ's sake, literally, let's stop violating it. The unity of the body of Christ depends on it. There's much power in our words to do evil. And I've only just touched on it, on what Proverbs says about it. That's all I can do this morning. But I want us to at least (laughs) think about this some. But there's also tremendous power in our words, to do good. Indeed, wise and godly words have greater power still to do good. Greater power than evil words have to do evil. You know why? Because the one who empowers them is God. Again, Proverbs 11, 11, By the blessing of the upright, a city is built up. By the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for building up, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Foolish and evil words tear down and destroy, but wise and godly words have amazing power to encourage, to strengthen, to build up, to establish. 
Do you want to be powerfully used by God to build up that which is dear to His heart? Do you want to be powerfully used by God to transform the hearts of men for the sake of Jesus Christ? Then know that the most powerful tool that God has handed to you to do so is godly words. How many times have you heard it said or or said it yourself that actions speak louder than words? You know what? Based on God, on these passages and many others, I have to say that that saying is oversold. Not that it's not true, but that it's oversold. You know when I think it really comes to bear? When actions speak louder than words is when our actions and our words contradict each other. When they do, someone's going to look at the actions, they're going to say, that's the, that's the real story. But when our actions and our words correspond to each other, when our actions corroborate and bear out our words, God uses our words with amazing power to transform the hearts of men and to, pos- to do positive and good things. Words have the power to deliver, to heal, and to reconcile. Proverbs 11.9 says, With his mouth the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. Proverbs 12.18 says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. (laughs) The damage is done by the bad words, but healing comes by the good words that come after Proverbs 16.24 Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. When your own foolish words or words spoken by someone else have badly wounded the heart of someone you know, your godly, loving, and wise words will be used by God to heal, restore, and reconciled. It doesn't mean you can undo the damage that was done. It does mean greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. It does mean that God's power to heal is greater than Satan's power to tear down and destroy. And so there is such a thing as restoration. That's what God is in the business of doing. Our words have the power to impart and preserve life. Actually, God, through our words... God's the only one who gives life. Proverbs 10.11 The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. It overflows with life. But the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 15.4 A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion, corruption, and it crushes the spirit. Proverbs 13.3 The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. So our words impart and preserve life for others and for ourselves. Proverbs 6.20-24 We looked at it a little while ago. My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. And then he says, If you bind those words on your heart and tie them around your neck, when you walk around, they'll guide you. When you sleep, when you sleep, they'll watch over you. When you awake, they'll talk to you. I love that. (laughs) For the commandment is a lamp. Teaching is light. 
and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Life. What is life? Well, Jesus defined life for us in John 17.3. This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Life is relationship with God. And the most powerful way God uses us as his instruments to impart and preserve life in others is through godly words. Words that point men's hearts to him and turn men back to him when they slip away. Let's talk a little bit about the virtue of verbal restraint. How do you treat something that's exceedingly powerful? that can do either tremendous harm or tremendous good. If you were tasked with transporting a hundred tons of TNT across the country to be used for a bridge-building project, you would know that that much TNT can accomplish great good in the hands of someone who uses it well, and it can accomplish amazing harm in the hands of someone who uses it badly. So would you take that task Lightly or seriously? Would you treat it carelessly or cautiously? Well, based on all that we've just seen about the power of words to do either tremendous evil or tremendous good, what should we do with our words? Proverbs 10.19 says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. (laughs) But he who restrains his lips is wise. 15.28 says the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked just pours forth evil things. One of those is controlled and thoughtful and cautious. And the other one is unbridled, completely uncontrolled. Proverbs 17.27, he who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. By the way, every time you see the word knowledge in Proverbs, almost every time, it's roughly equivalent to wisdom because Solomon and the other writers in Proverbs, when they talk about knowledge, they mean the knowledge of God. They mean the knowledge of his character and his will and his way that results in wisdom. I love these verses, but I find them very convicting. (laughs) They all talk about the virtual of verbal restraint, and my problem is I'm very, very verbal. Just ask my wife. Without exception, fewer, more carefully considered words are far better than many thoughtlessly spoken words. Without exception. And of course, one of the surest cures for careless speech is learning how to really listen. Proverbs 18.13 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, <laughs> it is folly and shame to him. James 1.19 says, Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Anybody in here, if you're as old as I am, seen the old uh, 1971 movie Big Jake with John Wayne? 
John has this, there's this one segment in the movie where, where John Wayne's character, uh, Jake McCandless, is talking to one of his sons, who instantly is played by John Wayne's son, Patrick. And his son is ranting and ranting about something. He goes on and on for a long time, and finally he stops, and, and Jake says to, the, to his son, Boy, you are short on ears and long on mouth. He might as well have been talking to me when I was young. My dad said to me once when I was a young man, Son, you have to learn how to listen to understand instead of to respond. Those are very wise words. Now, some of you have read Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He says almost the same thing. He says most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. But my dad said that to me more than 10 years before that book was published. So he's my primary source. That's wise counsel. Listen to understand. And especially listen to the things that God says for understanding. Wise words and foolish words have no common ground. Does anybody here like hot fudge cake with ice cream? You know, when they take you take a piece of warm chocolate cake and you put a big chunk of vanilla ice cream on top and then you smother it with hot fudge syrup. Anybody here like that? (laughs) The hot and the cold, the chocolate and the vanilla, it is, it is, it's what I call a perfect contrast. Well, that kind of contrast works great with dessert, and it works lousy with words. Wise words and foolish words do not coexist at all. In fact, one of them cancels out the other. In Proverbs 8, verse 1 says, Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? In other words, this is personifying wisdom, and wisdom is the one speaking. And then in verses 6 and following, it says, wisdom says, Listen, for I shall speak noble things. And the opening of my lips, every time wisdom opens its mouth, it produces right things. And then wisdom says, For my mouth will utter truth. And wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Proverbs 37.30 says, The mouth of the righteous, the righteous person, utters wisdom. And his tongue speaks justice. That's what the righteous man does with his words. There is no common ground between wise words and foolish words, between godly words and evil words. If you speak out of both sides of your mouth, what you prove to men is that your good words are the fake ones. True wisdom always speaks wisely. I think of it like what Deuteronomy says about prophets. You know what the batting average of a prophet had to be? Thousand. If he ever uttered something that presumed to speak for God and didn't, 
he was to be taken outside the camp and stoned to death. True wisdom always speaks wisely. This is not a mix. It's an absolute. James 3, verses 8 through 12 that we read at the beginning. Look at the absolute nature of what is supposed to happen and look at how corrupted it has become in James's analysis. He says, no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And by, by the way, he's speaking to those whom he calls my beloved brethren. Verse 9, with it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. And then he says, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? The answer is no. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? The answer is no. Neither can salt water produce fresh. James is saying it is incomprehensible for one mouth to speak both good things and evil things, and yet it happens all the time. Do you adjust the quality of your words to the company that you're keeping at a given point in time? Do you speak one way when you're here at church and very much another when you're in your own house or hanging out with your BFFs? If you do, God calls that hypocrisy. And it's repugnant to Him. One of the earmarks of real godly wisdom is that it's consistent. And so it manifests itself consistently in godly words. A man whose heart is truly inclined toward God and toward the things of God will speak consistently the things that are in keeping with the character of God. None of us is perfect with his words. But some of us bounce back and forth between godly and ungodly speech almost as if it were as desirable and harmless as mix, mixing hot fudge with cold ice cream. If we do mix our words in that way, we prove that the ones we're not particularly serious about are the good ones. The last point, words of life have only one source. And this is huge. In John 6, Jesus said some things that really shook up the people who were following him around, some of whom were just looking for another free meal. After Jesus saw that many of those who had been with him had bailed out and gone elsewhere, he asked his 12 disciples if they wanted to go away as well. Peter was the one who responded. And he said, Lord, I don't have a slide, but he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? And then the next thing Peter said is, you have words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Peter could be a little dense at times, just like we could. But he stayed the course as a follower of Jesus Christ because he knew this. He knew that Jesus was the only one who had words of life. If you walk away this morning uh, with only one point from this message, I pray it will be this. The words we speak that accomplish good are only the ones that, met, that match up with God's Word.
And that's because in the final analysis, there's only one source of good and life-giving words. Solomon's source for every word of wise counsel that he presents in this book was God. You remember when Solomon became king over Israel, God said to him, what do you want me to give to you? And Solomon said, there's just one thing. I want wisdom so that I can judge and lead your people according to your will. And God said, that's a good, that's a good request. I'm going to give you more wisdom, greater wisdom than any king who has ever lived before you or any king who will ever come after you, except one. And that miraculous gift of wisdom was the source of every wise word that Solomon wrote. And the same is true of every other word in the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Think about how much time and effort and money many Christian men spend, and women, to discipline and build up their bodies while at the same time they can't find five minutes in a day to equip their tongues. They're neglecting the one member of their body that God has endowed with the greatest power. If our words have the power to build up or to destroy to bless or to curse, to unite or to divide, to bring life or to bring death, then the very most critical discipline that you or I can ever engage in is to conform our words to God's Word. And to do that, we have to know God's Word. We have to know it intimately, personally, pervasively. We need to make sure that that rudder that steers us either toward catastrophe or toward eternal good is the rudder that God gave us from here. All right, we're out of time, so I'm just going to wrap up. Guys, um, there's a huge opportunity here for us to be salt and light if we understand the, <laughs> the magnitude of this issue of how we how we handle words. We live in a culture that is without honor and without shame. If we will have the self-discipline to set our minds on those things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and of good repute and excellent and worthy of praise, in other words, the things that we discover because God has shown them to us, and if we will then have the courage to carefully speak only those things that we have received from Him, then we have God's assurance that He will magnify the power of those words. And we're going to find that we are mightily used by God to do eternally good things. That's the way it works. That's what He says. Now when you do that, many who follow the course of this world will malign and insult you But there will always be some out there whose hearts will be pierced by the quality of the words you speak on behalf of God. May we choose in obedience to speak only that which is wise. Loving Father, we thank you for the 
uh, the forcefulness of the things that you say to us about the power of our, of our words. We thank you, Lord, for the knowledge that, uh, that your word, that which you speak, is powerful beyond all measure. And when we go to the trouble to submit ourselves to that which you have spoken, when we go to the trouble to repeat it to other men, to saturate our minds with it, to conform all that we say to it and all that we do, then, Father, we know that you're going to use us mightily because of your power, not ours. We ask that that's exactly what you will do. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.